A lot of business founders feel lost and I think they feel duped over what they thought the industry was. There's a lot of people talking about what it takes to build a successful company. Unfortunately, every other day I have a founder email me or message me on LinkedIn saying that they're shutting down their business or they want to shut down their business. And it's because of the issues that we've talked about from scaling the company, getting over that hurdle or being too unique and having high educational costs to, to reach that success. And so everything kind of comes down to that. I think one of the biggest things now is, right, there's still a fundraising crunch, but what that's really highlighted is how many brands don't have a solid foundation without outside capital. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Prepare to be enthralled as we embark on a deep dive with Jordan Buckner, a trailblazing entrepreneur, visionary, and dedicated mentor in the challenging world of CPG. Hold tight as we uncover his captivating entrepreneurial journey's intricate twists and turns, spanning hats one, three, and four, the soul, the servant, and the entrepreneur. In this ever-evolving CPG industry, Jordan stands out for his dedication to supporting and uplifting fellow founders. His experience highlights the importance of mentorship, understanding your industry's intricacies, and building genuine relationships. See, Jordan is the founder of T-Squares, a line of energy bars infused with matcha to help people stay focused and energized, and also the founder of Food Bevy, an online community for food and beverage founders to help them grow from startup to scale. Not to mention a fellow podcast host hosting one of the top CPG podcasts around. From navigating financial challenges to understanding the need for adaptability and resilience, Jordan's insights are practical and invaluable. So if you're looking for a no-nonsense take on the CPG industry and the power of collaboration, you're in for a treat. Let's jump right in and welcome Jordan to The Seven Hats. Jordan, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thank you. I've been waiting a long time for this. Well, me too. And you know why? Because you're an accomplished entrepreneur and the driving force behind Food Bevy, which was the catalyst of our meeting on LinkedIn, I believe. I always admired your candid and straightforward nature and your visible journey through the challenging waters of entrepreneurship from the birth of T-Squares, which we'll talk about, to the creation of valuable resources for the food and beverage industry and entrepreneurs with Food Bevy. You're also, Jordan, a powerful advocate for mental health and self-care in the entrepreneurial space. But before we dive deep into your journey, explore the peaks and valleys, and reveal the wisdom that you've gained over the years, our seven hatters would love to know more about you and the experiences that have shaped your path. 
So, Jordan, let's kick things off. Where were you born and how was your childhood like? I was born in Chicago, Illinois, in the city there, and spent most of my life being raised. You know, I had an interesting childhood, I guess. Like both of my parents are entrepreneurs, both came from entrepreneurial families as well. And so the fact that I am on this journey was was just destiny and in my blood. I don't even know what it's like to to work at a corporate job. <laughs> what were your parents doing? What kind of businesses did they own? My dad started off professionally as a dentist, but then over the course of his career, he ended up helping to found a bank, one of the first Black-owned banks in Chicago. Wow. Um, he also... Um, owned a travel agency. He was chairman of a television and radio station, and he had a number of other things that, that you know I always forget along the journey. And then my mom, she worked a kind of corporate account sales job, but on the side was selling Tupperware. She eventually started selling baked goods, kind of to local businesses around and ended up leaving that and starting a catering company and opened up her own kitchen and doing catering. And so grew up kind of around food and business all around me. My dad didn't own a bank. Wait a second. (laughs) (laughs) What's going on here? That's a problem. All right. So any uh, siblings? I have a older sister and a brother. So I am the youngest of three. Nice. So tell me about your childhood. Any traumas, anything you want to talk about, which will help us understand how your mindset and mind was shaped through your adult years? Yeah. You know, I think I had the uh, typical American childhood of just, you know, normal chaos around. (laughs) My parents were separated from when I was two or three years old. But it was interesting because I actually saw both my mom and dad pretty much every day. My mom would, I I lived with my mom along with my brother. Uh, My sister was 10 years older, so she was kind of out at that point. But my mom would drop my brother and I off at school every day, and my dad would pick us up from school. And we usually go out and like do homework or go out to dinner, and he'd drop us off in the evening. So while you know I kind of grew up in this split parent household, but I still saw both my parents every day, so it didn't really feel that way. But I also had kind of two different styles of of being raised, where I was kind of had both parents, but was also raised by single parents in a lot of ways. So I learned to kind of navigate different environments and different situations pretty early. I think another key is I was fortunate enough to go to private school in Chicago, which is a great opportunity. Uh, but you know, my parents weren't weren't like very wealthy, especially of the kids that I went to school with. We were probably on the lower end of that income spectrum going in, but still um, had opportunities to you know, go to, to school with p- kids whose parents were like hedge fund investors yeah. and bankers. But I also lived in a very middle class, like 99% black community in Chicago. And so I also lived between these two worlds of kind of my everyday at home and then this other environment of just, you know, being amongst kids uh, who were at wealthy 
families. And so I also learned how to navigate the duality of both of those two environments, which really gave me also a different perspective on how people behave, lived and acted and the similarities and differences. So you're in high school and what's expected of you? What do you want to what do you want to do? What your your parents are entrepreneurs. Did you want to become an entrepreneur or was there different interests? Ever since third grade, I had the desire to be an architect because in third grade, we did a class project where we were visiting a Frank Lloyd Wright design home in the Chicago suburbs. And we also, it was like the 90s, so we were grabbing lunch at McDonald's, <laughs> you know, as a student group before that was uh, uh, considered bad and had the idea, you know, what would a Frank Lloyd Wright design McDonald's look like? Right. It was an offhand comment. I was in third grade. But yeah. my teacher actually thought that was a great assignment and actually uh, built an entire class unit around building and designing a Frank Lloyd Wright McDonald's. We got to go to McDonald's headquarters in the Chicago suburbs, and it was like a whole thing. And so that started this vision of becoming an architect. So I took architecture classes in high school, and that was part of my decision on the high school to go to Whitney Young in Chicago. And then even in college, I ended up having two degrees in architecture. Wow. All right. So you get out of college. You're a young, spunky architect at this point. What happened? Well, so it's interesting. So I did my undergrad in architecture at University of Michigan. Then I did grad school at Illinois. And at that point, I realized I actually did not want to work professionally <laughs> as an architect because okay. I love the education and the thoughts behind it, but not the actual profession of it. So I ended up doing my MBA at Illinois as well and started my first company out of college, which was a meal kit delivery business that I was starting right at the end there. But of course, I was just getting off the, the idea off the ground and was working, kind of doing some strategy and marketing consulting work while running um, this business on the side nights and weekends. And a year into the job, I realized I was thinking more about my meal kit delivery business than the actual job at hand. And so put in my my notice and started doing that full time. Why uh, meal delivery? What, what was the catalyst for starting that? It was before, uh, right when Blue Apron and HelloFresh were just getting started. So it was in their first year or two. And I was staying with a friend for my summer internship. And because it was at his place, I thought like, you know, I really love cooking, but I don't want to go grocery shopping and just cook for myself and have all these wasted ingredients. So I wish I just had all the fresh ingredients that I needed to make a meal for myself in like a kit ready to go instead of wasting all the spices and stuff that I wouldn't need and I was leaving in a month. And so that's what sparked the idea of did a bunch of research and identified that there were some companies just starting out and doing that, which meant that like everyone, there wasn't like a graveyard of failed businesses at the time. Yeah. So I thought, hey, there could be a competitive opportunity here. And in school, I used it as a test case for my business classes. And that's what kicked off that journey of building a meal kit company. How did you fund it? It was self-funded. So as I was working that job, I was saving all my money to do this, ended up when I quit, I left my Chicago apartment, moved back in, uh, moved in with my dad at the time to really save as much money as I could. I think I probably had 
$10,000 saved up to start this meal kit business. But I was doing everything, Duval, right? Like I had zero, I didn't even know what an investor was at the time. I was literally going to the grocery store, buying ingredients there, taking it back. But luckily, my mom had uh, the commercial kitchen for her business. And so yeah. we had a licensed facility I was able to use for free. I was got my food handler's license. I was prepping all the ingredients myself. I was doing all the deliveries myself. I was managing and building the website, taking our photography, literally anything that had to do with the business. It was only me. The only thing I ever hired out was building our initial website for $500. Everything else after I was doing it all, like literally like Mondays were grocery, ingredient pickup days. We're doing all the prep. We're doing deliveries all day, Tuesday, driving around Chicago, hand delivering these bags that we had and insulated totes to customers. It was wild. And what happened? Quickly realized that that business was inherently expensive (laughs) to scale, (laughs) right? Like, and there's way too much work. And at the time, played in Blue Apron, the competitors were growing, but there's also this sense of the fact that they were spending so much money on marketing and growth and losing you know, the back end. And we see that that market's basically collapsed now. And so at the time, I knew it wouldn't be sustainable to continue. And as while I was doing that, I started thinking of other ideas and thinking, hey, I'm making all this food for other people, yet I wasn't eating well myself. And then also had the issue of I couldn't drink coffee. I have stomach and gut issues. And so the acidity from coffee uh, really hurts me, but I was working like crazy. So I wanted to create a snack that I was able to eat that would help me stay energized and focused throughout the day. And Mm -hmm. so that's what led to the creation of T-squares. And so I was testing this idea for T-squares, which was a crunchy energy bar made with black and green teas to help you stay focused and energized, kind of while running that meal kit company. And saw some great early traction for that because I was running both businesses simultaneously for about six months and then shut down the meal kit company and went all in on T-squares. You didn't make a meal for yourself when you were making meals for others? Nope, I should have. It would have been like much easier. But after like making food for everyone else, I did not want to do it for myself. So it was ironic, but yes. <laughs> I, I would think just take one aside, just put it on the side. All right, we'll talk about T-squares because I know you learned a lot from that experience. I really want to start with basic entrepreneurial insights because not only have you been through it, right, with T-squares and Food Bevy, because Food Bevy is a company and you are an entrepreneur there and you're dealing with the same shit that everybody else is dealing with, whether it's a food product or a food community. But you and I spoke many times about the challenges of being an entrepreneur, specifically regarding the feelings of loneliness and isolation that come with being a founder. And I know that throughout T-Squares, for sure, and probably even with Food Bevy, you've dealt with it. Tell us a little bit about that. What's that story look like and how did you deal with this issue? Well, you know, it's the perfect transition. There are lots of of things that happen. So in transitioning from my meal kit company, which is called Chopbox into T-Squares, I went from being the solo founder doing everything to actually bringing on three co-founders immediately Wow! because I did not want to be on this journey alone. And, you know, one of them was a fellow classmate, two others were kind of friends turned business partners. And my idea was that, hey, if I bring on more people, then they'd be able to share all the workload. You know, maybe not equally, but they may be able to kind of pull their weight. And one 
mistake that I made early on with that, which of course caused a ripple effect of problems down the road, was the fact that you know my other co-founders, I think I each of them had 20% of the business roughly, and I had the remaining 40%. Mm-hmm. And so there's this idea of like, hey, I want you to have a significant portion of the business because I want you to do 20% of the work. Yeah. But they had other jobs, they were focused elsewhere, only one other partner is in the business with me full time. And you know, inherently that wasn't their idea. And so that caused an initial conflict when I was doing so much of the the actual work and they they weren't. And to their credit, you know, that's not what they were expecting to do. It was something that I inher- internally expected, but didn't even share that with them. And so there's a misalignment in terms of what each of us was looking to get out of the business. And that just kind of snowballed over time because of that poor communication. And so that leads to one of my my biggest points around is really throughout entrepreneurship and business and relationships, it's so important to one, be very clear on your own expectations for any relationship and understand the other party's expectations and then communicate. And not just one time, but consistently and over and over again, so that you're not leaving a gap in understanding of, of what's going on, because that only creates so many more problems. Yeah, it's a problem. And speaking about co-founders, I was very fortunate the second time around to meet my co-founder, Chris Ambarian. And we've just had you met him, you know him. And he's he's been great. And we've had incredible success. But my the first time around, my co-founder was not that great, and we suffered tremendously because of it. The business suffered, as well as my wife and I personally, because of that relationship. What advice would you give entrepreneurs who are starting out when looking for a partner or a co-founder? One, should they go for it? If they do, how many? What are your thoughts on that? It's very nuanced. And as you know, every situation is going to be different. I think one, there's a lot of advice given around find someone who complements your skill set. I think that's true. But I also feel that it's important to understand your vision for the company and what you want to get out and how you're going to get to that in destination, the journey and seek someone who really aligns with that vision. And because if you have different visions of not only the journey, but also the end destination, then that partnership's going to fall apart. The other advice I would give is try working with that person in the business or around something similar before signing the legal documents on the partnership to make sure that you actually enjoy working with each other. A lot of times people will find a friend to be a co-founder. And while it might seem fun at first, you realize that a business relationship is a lot different from a friendship or a family relationship. And so give yourself an out, right? Like give yourself an easy way to say, hey, look, gonna give this a three month shot working together. And if it doesn't work out for any reason or anyone wants to pull out, like no harm, no foul, let's just go back to being friends or or family or colleagues, right? So give yourself an, an out early on and throughout that process. And I also say that having a co-founder is not necessary. Uh, People can build businesses on their own to start, but you do need help. And so maybe instead of a co-founder, what you're actually looking for is just someone to share the the workload. Sometimes admin work, sometimes it's like marketing or skill sets that you don't have. And as best you can, 
find ways of hiring that out or doing smaller projects or contracts with people where you're able to get the actual work done, but maybe you don't need the thought leadership elements of a co-founder that you might be be looking for. You know, I see that all the time where I, I saw a post the other day where someone said like, I just don't have the time to get everything done and I don't have any money. So I want to bring on a co-founder because then I can just give them stuff. And of course, they're going to be another version of myself. And that never happens. And I'm reading a book, Who Not What?, and it's just such a great book and speaks to a, a wonderful point that you just brought up. Everybody just jumps into the co-founder scenario. Hey, let me give away 50% of the company, 30% of the company, and I'll find a co-founder to share my workload. They don't realize that they're getting married. So that's a huge undertaking right there. And if you don't know each other that well or you're miscommunicating, that's a problem. I agree with you. I think now nowadays with remote work, you actually don't need a founder unless you find someone that is so dedicated to your mission and vision that they're willing to die in the hill for it, right? And and you can start off by hiring the marketing, the sales, the administrator operations aspect of your business and see how it goes. And if you find someone that is so incredible that you just vibe with and they add so much value and go ahead and offer them a co-founder position later on. Let's dive a little bit into the stress and demands of entrepreneurship. T-squares, you're starting a CPG company. It doesn't seem like you were an abused child, but you know, usually I see real childhood trauma for anybody that starts a CPG brand. What was that like? And talk about some of the stresses and demands and the challenges that you went through in building a CPG brand. One of the biggest challenges that I see about the CPG space is starting out, you are selling a very low priced product mm -hmm. at a relatively low margin. And in order to be successful, you have to sell a lot of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like we were selling our energy bars and the wholesale, we were selling them at a time for a dollar bar and our margin on there was 50 percent, which you know sounds pretty great until you realize that's 50 cent every bar that we were selling and so in order to get to a point where we were selling a million dollars or you know making a million dollars in kind of gross revenue we had to sell two million bars right two million dollars and two million bars and just the volume of doing that is a whole nother level. And so we would have had to be in thousands of stores and that thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers who are buying our product. And so I think that's the weird allure of the CPG industry. It's very, very easy to get started creating a food product and getting it out there. But there's a giant chasm in terms of building your business where you're bringing in enough revenue and profitability and scale to actually make it worthwhile and, and start making cash. And I think that is. One something that I experienced as well, right? With T-Squares, we had a lot of initial traction. We ended up selling and uh, getting the go-ahead for Whole Foods Midwest mm -hmm. in our first three months after launch. Nice. We met the Whole Foods buyer at an event in Chicago. They're opening up a new store on the south side of the city, and they greenlit us for those stores. We ended up launching in one store to start and adding them piece by piece until we were selling in 12. And, you know, we were making product in the commercial kitchen i was doing with my business partner like the deliveries across chicagoland dropping product off and it was grueling work and i remember after you know maybe the first year and selling at whole foods 
we are selling about $3,000 worth of product per month across all the stores. And we had to do demos and pay demo people to promote it. And after all of our expenses, we were only bringing in a couple hundred dollars. And that was like to pay ourselves. You know, that wasn't even including paying yeah. ourselves. That was after the product costs and after the, the demo support. And it was like pennies. And we were like, how can we build a successful company, you know, on, on a couple hundred dollars of not even pay? And so for the first number of years, we weren't paying ourselves. We ended up bringing on two great investor groups, which were able to kind of fund the company. We raised $100,000 and then we did a second round of $250,000. And so we were able to pay ourselves a little bit from that. I think though, like pretty much I didn't make more than $40,000 a year in, in running the company for five, almost six years. Wow. And that was a huge toll of one, having a finite amount of money from our investors seeing our bank account continuously go down, have spikes of up, but continuously deplete itself. Knowing that I was losing other people's money, I was letting down my employees who we had and my team members. And that's how I felt, right? Like it was my responsibility as the CEO to steer the ship and make sure that we're growing. And we saw growth, but we I knew our cash position was always dwindling. And there's this constant battle, like once you take outside money, you need to show growth. But oftentimes that happens unprofitably because you have to do a lot of spend and expenses to grow the business. And that took a huge toll on me in trying to figure out the best way to, to move forward. And that was probably the most trying kind of mental aspect of running the business. Looking back, what would you do differently? Not start a CPG product. um no i think there cpg is extremely tough and so the companies who are successful that i usually find are ones that one tap into a mega trend that consumers are driving with or without you and two create a product that is easy to understand but has a clear point of differentiation where if a customer sees your product they should be able to say you know like as an example perfect bar right the refrigerated protein bars like oh yeah. it's a protein bar but it's refrigerated because it has fresher ingredients right easy to understand and then the consumer can say yes that's something i'm looking for or no that's not something i'm looking for with our product we first build it as a tea infused energy snack and like I never went into the grocery store ever looking for a tea infused energy snack. Right. And so I knew zero people ever would. And when people would try our product with demos, they would say, Hey, this product tastes really great, but I never would have bought it. Like we literally had the customer tell me, like, I saw this on the shelf. I saw, thought it was interesting, but I didn't buy it. I didn't understand what it was. And so I say all that because part of the financial hurdle is we were spending so much money on education and marketing in order to try to get people to buy our product that it never generated kind of a self-sustainable kind of growth or word of mouth because it was so expensive to get the first and the second and the third purchase from a customer. And so the products that have an easier time, especially financially as well, are ones that consumers are already looking for and they're going to buy something whether it's you or not and then it's easy to understand so that they're like yes this solves my problem here's my money and that leads to a lot of the financial problems you're the third cpg entrepreneur that said do not start a cpg brand noah wunsch from ruby mark samuels from my one and now you <laughs> <laughs> so and and i i haven't had one 
in between that said, no, no, it's a good idea. Go start a CPG brand. I just want you to well, know that. You know, here's the thing. Actually, it's funny because as an architect and when I was doing school, it was very common for anyone who was an architect to say, don't become an architect. And yeah. here's why, right? Because it's so challenging, you need to be able to fly in the face of so many obstacles in order to succeed that if you're going to hit the first or second barrier, if you listen to one person that says, don't do it, and you're like, oh, all right, I'm not going to do it, you would never <laughs> would have survived anyway. And so it takes the person who's going to overcome all those challenges, everyone telling them no, including the experts who are actually going to find success. And the thing is, you can kind of tend to forget the pain that <laughs> happened in the past. So a serial entrepreneur will go through the pain and say never again. And then a couple of years later say, you know what? I think it's a good idea to start another brand. <laughs> and so, it is the same exact thing. Quick question about the business. When you closed it, what was the reason? Was it, did you just run out of cash? Did you want to give up and you're like, I'm done? What was that like? And did you have anything on the sideline in order to jump into? If you didn't, how was that for you? So I'll take you back to January of 2020. We pivoted away from retail with T-squares and started selling to corporate offices Mm -hmm. And it was a huge windfall because we had we were selling to Cisco Systems out on the West Coast, and they were literally buying pallets of product every week. Right, wow. we had found product market fit kind of within corporate offices because we were designed to be like a replacement for your second coffee, and things were going like amazing. Like our order quadrupled over the course of a month, and so. We start buying lots of product. We're sending stuff out. We're literally doing two-day shipping to California on pallets because they're going to buy for the rest of the year. Wow. March 2020 comes. Oh, Everything man. shuts down. At this point, right, like we're just struggling to get paid by our distributor who had product, but they're seeing issues and they don't want to pay us because their business is shut down as well. And... At this time, we had gone through this rebrand. There's some difference in direction amongst the, you know, our co-founders in terms of what we want the business to be. I was burnt out. It was at this time that I actually found myself one night, I came home, I'm in my kitchen, and I'm just like hyperventilating. I fall and sit on the floor and my wife was luckily there and she said, Jordan, you're having a panic attack. I had no idea. It's never happened to me in the, my entire life. I've never had one since. But the whole of the stress of the business, of losing money, of did not, we were not able to raise a third fundraising round. We got to a point of being break even, which is great, except now our cash flow dried up. We had a different direction in terms of like the vision that we wanted to take the company. And I hit my breaking point. That was it. And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of stood up and eventually once I caught my foot, I was like, I can't keep doing this. And so it was at that point that I started thinking like, one, the business, we don't know how long this COVID thing is going to, going to last, but I need to start thinking about other things that I can do as, as an alternative. And so at that time, uh, for a while, I had been 
during the previous year working with other founders in our portfolio company of one of our investors to put together these workshops. And I was like, hey, I love this idea of bringing founders together and of coordinating because it feels like we're all reinventing the wheel every single time we're starting a business and it doesn't have to be this way. And that's what initially was the seed idea for Food Bevy, where I said, hey, I want to build a community to bring founders together so that they would be able to build a successful company without going through all the pain. And so started doing some initial testing groups, and that essentially became the catalyst for Food Bevy. Wow. There's so many things, but I've experienced the same emotions that you have. We had to close shop in retail with Luvala, my skincare line with my wife, that we launched back in 2006. This was around 2011. And I, too, was just like sobbing in my bedroom, not knowing what to do, about to lose everything in my life. And that's kind of where I pivoted and, and created Promomash to help brands succeed where I was not able to. Really honoring, and I think you do the same thing, honoring those dreamers who risk everything in order to create a product that's going to change the world. You never know. You have a little girl who grew up with her grandma's cookies, and that's all she remembered, and it's the best cookies she's ever had, and she wants to share that love that her grandma shared with her, with everyone. And that's one type of situation when a, a brand is created, and other is, I don't know, fish oil or some concoction saves somebody's life, and they want to help others as well. So these are hardworking individuals that mean so well, but it's so hard in CPG. And I just want to bring it back to one thing you said that I think is so important that I want to bring it up again. When you create a product, you're either going to create a Me Too product that everybody knows about, like water, or you're going to create a product that no one understands what it is, like T-squares, where it's not easily understood by the name. And you might think, oh, it's cute and I'm putting my name on it. No, the best way after all these years and working with so many brands, I think you would agree. Perfect bar, the honest company, simple message on the front that tells you and the name, easy to remember, that tells you what the damn product is. Unless you want to go the liquid death. But even they're just selling water, right? They're selling water. <laughs> they're selling water. <laughs> but they had to say liquid death. So everybody who walks by the shelf says, what the hell is this? <laughs> and, and that's why they were successful. So you got to be careful when you're creating a CPG brand. The shopper doesn't give a shit about your product, nor the packaging, nor anything. All they care about is their needs and finding it easily on the shelf or knowing what to look for. And it's a habit to pick it up, which is why Large contenders win all the time because they already spent a lot of money on marketing. Everybody knows them and they just pick it up. They're not going to try something new. So I think that's a really important part of it. I want to just shift a little into mental health and self-care. How do you balance the mental and emotional strains of running a business with the need for self-care? Is there a routine? Are you meditating? What are you doing in order to get zoned in and zend out? I talk a lot about work-life flow, which is the fact that, right, especially as entrepreneurs, our lives, personal or family are integrated pretty seamlessly within the work that we do. You know, I am on a meeting, I have, you know, kids around, I'm going to, to events with their school. So there's all these things happening throughout the day. And one thing that I did was 
or a couple of things. One, I gave myself the permission to include all those things together, right? It's not, this is work, this is life. They're completely separate. It's like, nope, yeah. this is one life that I live. So that helps from a, a standpoint of not Love being it. guilty of anything. And then the second is I'm very clear on prioritizing what's important to me because I had a little bit of a crisis moment, right? Because when I started Chopbox and T-Squares, I was single and met my now wife. And all of a sudden I went from this company that I described as my baby and I was all in for. Now I had other people that I cared about more than the company and it yeah. caused a little bit of an identity crisis. And so I said, hey, how do I now manage this new relationship at the time that I have with my business and its place? And so I actually wrote down, these are my priorities in, in life and the things that I care about. And I ranked them. And I said, I want to live my life where I am dedicating the first priority to my relationship, second to my business, and third to things I enjoyed and friends and spending time and eating great food and cooking. And so when I'm actually planning out my weeks and planning out my schedule, I use that as a guide to how I'm prioritizing things so that I can give myself permission to say no or to say yes to different activities. And I think it's a really healthy exercise for everyone to to do because I talk to founders all the time. They're like, hey, I feel either really guilty that I'm not spending enough time with my family, or I don't get to exercise, or I don't get to work on my business in the, the right level that I want to. And I said, well, what's your priority? And where do you actually want to spend your time? And whether it's those ones, you know, personal hobbies, uh, basically creating a list of these are the top three priorities I want to make sure to do. And then this is how I'm actually going to build my week and my life around that. That's personally helped me really well in order to, to find that balance. <laughs> this, the second thing, which sounds really simple, but I've become a huge advocate for is if you're able to build a financially sustainable company, it will relieve you of so much stress, yeah. right? Like even if you're just able to pay yourself a different, decent wage, but you're not stressed about the business going under or paying for your house or paying for food, really like you think about like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yep. Like if you're able to secure the basics, you yeah. will relieve so much of your stress that you can then focus on things like growth afterwards. That's why I had a T-square. Like I was telling, we were, I was constantly had this feeling of, decline and loss and yeah. with the work that i'm doing now and i actually have built both my work through food bevy and some other things i'm doing to okay it's not, i'm not making a ton of money from it but it's sustainable to the fact that like i'm not worried about going out of business or kind of financial ruin and my stress level has gone from an eight or nine out of ten to a one or two out of ten on a daily basis wow you mentioned your wife and the time that you were hyperventilating and having a panic attack Mark Samuel from I1, I asked him this question, how do you deal with support and distress within your family and your business? And he said, I don't bring my work problems home. And I do not speak about work at all with my family because I want to protect them. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about the support, but also putting your family in harm's way when you do have problems? For me personally, I've taken the approach of kind of with that one life mentality of making sure to weave that through everything that I do. And so 
with my wife, I share with her. I think I try to share both the really the positives and the negatives because I think as an entrepreneur, it's really easy just to vent around the negatives, and that could be yeah. very draining for someone yeah. who's supporting with you. If all they hear all the problems, they're going to think your business is shit, right? They're like, yeah. "Why are you doing this?" Is yeah, every exactly. day it sounds like it's a horrible thing, and so I was important to to share both the the positive and the negatives, and I think it also just allowed me to be more present and feel like I wasn't withholding anything. Yeah. But then also with, I have two kids now, one's kind of old enough to talk to. I'll actually share with her too. Like if not, not the details, but you know, like, Hey, I'm, you know, had a really bad day because I had a call with someone and this didn't work out or this deal didn't pan out. And I yeah. do it in a, a kid friendly way because I want to encourage her to, to be open with what's going on in her life as well and lead by example. But I also very, I, I do that kind of within my like family and my support group. And that's one way that's been able to help me get through things that are going on. And I will say like my wife is an incredible supporter and I would not be here where I am today without her and being able to navigate these challenges and get to a place of, of kind of successful, like entrepreneurial journey and the one that I'm, I'm on to, uh, from, from where I was before. Did your wife have an entrepreneurial mindset when you first met or did you throw her into the ring of fire with you? Yes and no. She she's always worked for for larger organizations and so she has a entrepreneur mindset, right? Yeah. So like being an entrepreneur within a larger organization. And so she gets it and understands it. She came from a family of um who had a business and so she definitely under understood it but also understood the the hardship that can come from running your own business as well. And so that gave her a level of empathy and understanding, but also support and realism to say, hey, what's working, what's not working, and how can you change this to make things better? But yeah. I, I will say like, it's always been, she's always been really successful because even when we shut down T-squares, you know, we, we talked about me getting another, you know, job or going into the corporate world. And I think out of honesty, she's like, you know, I don't think you would, be successful at a corporate job. You, you would quit or want to quit in three months or six months. And I was like, yeah, but you know, I would do it still. <laughs> I would want to quit, but I would stick with it. And she was like, find something that you care about, but better than what you were doing before that can actually be sustainable. And so that's what led me to what I'm doing now. See, I don't know how Mark Samuels does it. I'm on, in your camp because shout out to the wives who are dealing with the brunt of all of the issues that come through because you're just living together and you can't, It's for me, it's hard to hide it, right? And I don't know if it is for you, but my wife, Ala Karad and I, I mean, she was an actress. She had no experience with entrepreneurship. And when we first met and I was telling her all these great ideas and visions that I had, she was like, oh God, this kid, like forget about it. And we, when we actually got married and we literally went into business right away. And so- I got to give it to her, like all of the years, and I'm talking about since 2004, okay? We're talking about a lot of years of this, and usually it was down. It was not up, right? We had some great wins, and it was a great journey, and I think she will say that it was a, a wonderful experience, and she probably wouldn't have done it differently, hopefully. But I will say that her support is the reason that you and I are speaking today, there's no way I would have done it. And she was just a champion in helping. And I think that anyone that has a spouse that has an entrepreneurial mindset or not, you got to get that support. It's so important for you to drive 
the business forward, even if you fail. It's that getting up in the morning that makes it so much easier when you have somebody who loves you, who encourages you and says, you know what? Okay, you fucked up. Great. Now get up and do it again. Right. And that's, I think that's really a wonderful, wonderful aspect to, to one's entrepreneurial journey. Well, I think too, it's me having a family has made me a better entrepreneur because I am, you know, hundred percent the idea person. I love coming up with ideas. I have a hundred a day and I love the idea of just like starting something versus managing. But where I've been pushed and this is where my prioritization has changed because my ideation is not my number one priority. It's taking care of my family. It's changed how I've built my business now and being able to build something that solves a problem and is a great idea and something that I love but also something that is stable, right? Like I'm not seeking fast growth. Yeah, I have a, a small team that I tell them like, actually, we don't want to grow too fast. We want to keep mm. things manageable because that's what's actually going to be beneficial for me and my path and my goals and our goals. And so it's enabled me to focus and stick with one idea and not bite off more than I can chew. And become comfortable with with managing versus constantly trying to do something new. Yeah, I love that sustained growth. We have competitors that you know raise money and they're just hyper growing and it's you look at them you're like, "Oh, wow, they have all this money and they can advertise and great marketing and they hire great people." But in reality, they are getting themselves into a situation where they need to sustain that growth and then find profitability alongside it. So you know, with us at ProMash, we never really raised any funds because we didn't want to jump ahead of where we were capable of jumping, right? But in in terms of imposter syndrome, because I think this is something you and I spoke about, I think I, every entrepreneur faces it, no matter where they are in the career. Even Elon Musk, I'm sure, faces it in some way. Do you find yourself with imposter syndrome as a founder of a community helping other entrepreneurs succeed? Because some of them are, might be lower on the ladder, right, from where you were at T-squares. But some might be a bit further, right? You might have companies that are 20, 50, or more million dollars that you're helping and you're working with. How do you manage that, especially with the ego? Because the ego is going to just jump at you and say, who am I to help somebody that is further along than I was with my CPG brand? When I look back at my journey with T-squares, a lot of the things that I did, from being honest, was driven by ego, driven by wanting to prove to myself and others that I could be successful, that I could build a successful business, that I could have an exit in five years and sell for $100 million. And when that didn't happen, you know, it was a big check on, on why my purpose and why I was doing the things I was doing. And so with the work that I'm doing through Food Bevy, it's not about me. It's about sharing my experiences with the hope of helping others not go through the same pains and traumas that I did. And it's helping them be successful and making the founders that we work with in our community the heroes of the story. And I am happy and I see success when our founders are the ones that are growing. And I tell founders, right? Like I I don't know. Every, I don't know most things, 
But what I can do is help get you to the right people that can get the information to you and can connect you with other founders who can share their experiences so that as a whole, you are talking to the right collection of people who have been where you are or ahead of you or experts in things that you're not um, to really help build out a well-rounded business. So it's the who, not what again. So basically, if you've been there, you can help them because you've been there. And if you have not reached that milestone, just find the people that have and connect them to those individuals. I think that's a, that's a brilliant insight to those who are struggling with imposter syndrome. One more question on Food Bevy, because I think you have a, an interesting landscape and a vision of the industry. Okay. And we spoke about throughout the show how hard CPG is, right? I often relate it to running naked through the jungle, being chased by a lion, being eaten by bullet ants, and solving a Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and I still think that CPG is harder. But I'm curious, what are you currently hearing in the space? What are founders talking about? What, what are their big challenges in 2023 as they navigate their business forward? A lot of business founders feel lost and I think they feel duped over what they thought the industry was. There's a there's a lot of people talking about it on LinkedIn now, which I think is great, but it's still a challenge to really understand of what it takes to build a successful company. Unfortunately, every other day I have a founder email me or message me on LinkedIn saying that they're shutting down their business or yep. they want to shut down their business. Yep. And it's because of the issues that we've talked about from scaling the company, getting over that hurdle, not or being too unique and having high educational costs to, to reach that success. And so it's really, I mean, everything kind of comes down to that. I think one of the biggest things now is, right, there's still a fundraising crunch. Yes. Um, but what that's really highlighted is how many brands don't have a solid foundation without outside capital. Right. Like if capital dries up and that means your business can't survive, you might not have had a business. Right. Like yeah. it, it could have been a business in the future and found sustainability is kind of taking that software as a service model of like grow, 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 and then kind of find money once you have enough users. But having an inventory products, it doesn't really work that way. And so businesses who had funding and it ran out, they're struggling. Companies who don't have product market fit yet and they're at the beginning of their journey and they can't raise money to build the product or get customers, they're struggling. And a lot of them are choosing to, to leave the space because the reality, and I had this uh, uh, hour conversation with another founder, is basically it either takes a lot of money, you know, at least two to $5 million to have a chance at building a CPG company, or yeah. it takes a lot of time. Right. And a lot of time being eight years. to 10 years yeah. to be, to build a successful company and get to profitability. And if you don't have either of those, you can make it for a while, a couple of years, three, five years. But if you don't achieve one of those or, or have that as their vision, then a lot of companies are going to drop out. Hmm. We always thought that CPG stood for consumer packaged goods. But at Promash, we're coming out with a different meaning. We're renaming CPG into cash flow, profitability, and growth. And one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to create CP geniuses. And what is a genius? A genius is someone that sees things that others don't, that can connect the dots. And if you can't manage your cash flow and you can't be profitable and you're trying to grow, 
at the scale that most brands want to grow. That's the problem with CPG, is that brands who cannot manage their cash flow, meaning that you need cash to, to operate, otherwise you close your doors. So you either get it two ways, revenue or investments. So you better have those two figured out. And then even if you do have revenue and investment, if you're not profitable, that money's going to dry out eventually, and you're going to need to figure that out. So for those listening, cash flow, profitability, growth, think about that, and that will be a savior. And then hit up Jordan, because he'll tell you more about that. I love that. Jordan, we're short on time. I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I stopped having to be the selfish version of myself and started being the person who was comfortable with my values and living by my values, but doing things for others. I love and it. And that brought me joy. Wow. It brings me joy. And joy is all that matters. It really does. None of the accolades. So tell the Seven Hatters what you're currently up to, where they can reach you. Of course, I'll put it in the show notes. The best way to reach me is at foodbevy.com or search Jordan Buckner on LinkedIn. I am happy to help any food and beverage founder who's growing, who's looking for help, and any service providers who want to deliver value back to the community. As a little plug on what I'm doing next as well, I am launching our new rebranded version of my online gifting company, Joyful Co., which is all around spreading more joy through the, delivering the perfect gift for every occasion. And so that is going to be launching in a couple weeks here. So getting into continuing to stay with one foot in the door in the e-commerce space. Wow, that's exciting. I want to hear about that offline. Well, we're partners on FoodBevy. I support you in any way I can. And you support us in so many ways. I speak with brands all the time who get so much value out of what you do. If you're a brand founder, if you're a brand team, hit up Jordan. He's going to help you out. The community is incredible. Amazing brands that connect with each other. And then Jordan is just such an awesome individual. I love you, man. You are awesome. And I can't wait to see what's next for you. Thank you for gracing us on The Seven Hats. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun having this conversation. Absolutely. Well, we I was there. You had me in your show. I'm having you on my show. And I think we'll continue the discussion. Thank you so much. And we'll talk soon. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jordan. Let's end today with a show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Let's pause and reflect on a golden nugget of wisdom that emerged from our conversation today. The complex world of consumer packaged goods or CPG, as Jordan pointed out, is much more than the surface level mechanics of buying and selling. At its heart, it's a rich tapestry of passion, dreams, challenges, and perseverance. More than just generating profits, it's about understanding the intricacies of cash flow, ensuring sustainable growth, and the foundational importance of the relationships that we forged along our journey. As business owners and entrepreneurs, the value isn't just in what we create, but in the people we touch, the relationships we nurture, and the community we foster. In this era where the buzzword of growth and scale 
often drown out the real stories. Jordan's emphasis on the genuine challenges founders face is a stark reminder. If we take one thing from today's chat, let it be this. Success in the CPG world, and perhaps in life, isn't just about reaching the destination. It's about understanding the journey, learning from our hurdles, and lifting others as we climb. So, as we head into our next venture, business meeting, or even personal challenge, let's remember that the core essence of what makes a venture truly meaningful are the people, the passion, and the purpose. This message resonates with me deeply because as a startup CPG founder, as challenging as it was to run a business, it was also rewarding beyond words. And like Jordan, I am passionate about helping other CPG founders achieve their dreams and missions. It's a continuous cycle of dreamers helping other dreamers change the world. I want to thank Jordan once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our 7 Ads community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.